You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Stoltz, and I'm a senior program manager at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. We are here today to discuss police agencies' use of sobering centers as an alternative to arrest for public intoxication. Leaders from sobering centers and police departments will share their experience and advice for any police leaders thinking about the possibility of leveraging a sobering center in their own jurisdiction. We will talk about how their collaborative relationships were established, the challenges they faced along the way, and what they've learned from those experiences. Today, I'm honored to be joined by four special guests who are experts on this topic. They lead two sobering centers in Texas and the police departments that leverage those sobering centers. My name is Laura Elmore. I'm the executive director of the Sobering Center in Austin, Texas. My name is Joseph Chuckle. I'm the chief of police in Austin, Texas. Mike Lee, I'm the chief of law enforcement for the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Leonard Kincaid, director of the Houston Recovery Center. Great. Thank you so much to the four of you for being here. I want to start out our discussion broadly. Can you tell the audience what is a Sobering Center? Uh, Laura, can we start with you? Sure. A sobering center is essentially a safe place for publicly intoxicated individuals to sober up as an alternative to jail or the hospital. Um, So it is staffed by usually peer support specialists, counselors, medics. It's not a law enforcement entity. It is not an entity that detains folks, but provides an alternative to arrest by providing a safe place for people to get their needs met and return care. Okay. And Director Kincaid, does your sobering center operate similarly in Houston? Yes. The sobering center is a 24-hour diversion site for law enforcement, but we also now do outreach to the community, looking for individuals that are impaired on the streets of Houston that may be in a compromising situation that could cause them to harm themselves or someone else. Thank you. Chief Chacon, can you tell us a little bit about how the Austin Police Department works with the sobering center? Certainly. So the Austin Police Department is one of a number of agencies in um, Travis County and around the sobering center, but we are, I think, probably the the one that contributes the most individuals, refers them for the services that the sobering center provides. Um, It is uh, particularly uh, useful uh, and helpful for the officers that are working in our downtown entertainment district on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even Sundays when we have large numbers of people down there and as the evening goes on and people are having a good time and maybe have overdone it, um, it's just a really great alternative rather than taking someone to jail for public intoxication to get them someplace where they can be safe, they can sober up, they can speak to uh, the support specialists, certainly they're in the center about, you know, making good choices uh, and then for those who might be chronic users of the center, getting them into longer-term care and, and uh, support services as well. Great. Thank you. And Chief Lee, can you tell us a little bit about how your department leverages the Sobering Center? Uh, much like Chief uh, Chukam said, it, I mean, it's a resource for all law enforcement agencies, including Harris County Sheriff's Office mm-hmm. in the Harris County area. And it is a, uh, a phenomenal facility that uh, gives officers and deputies an alternative that uh, they can take a person to the Houston Recovery Center and instead of our jail. It's much faster, which mm-hmm. the officers do enjoy that benefit. 
What does the population that you serve uh, tend to look like? We serve about 70% of our admissions. And I notice our, our data is, is similar, but different the way we're measuring it, I think. like So it's 70% of our admissions are like usually one-time admissions. We have about 30% are repeat and some, you know, very, very frequent visitors that we know. Our patients are mostly men. I think that, well, that's probably true all over the country, about 75, 25. So mostly men. Our demographics from a race and ethnicity perspective tend to mirror the city of Austin pretty well. Although, you know, it does look like a lot of white men when you look at it on paper, but that's really what you see when you see a lot of like public intoxication partying. Again, there are a lot of issues there around like drug of choice and and how illegal the drug is. I mean, alcohol is a very culturally and socially acceptable drug, so lots of people do it in public. Not so much true for smoking crack and other things. Those things tend to be a little bit more secretive. So yeah, we see definitely the party, you know, downtown entertainment district vibe, but we also see individuals who are chronically addicted, who've been living on the streets for a long time, who are definitely in need of help and the access to care is much more complex than I think anybody really realizes it is. And so there isn't really an easy way to just say, I'm ready to get sober. I'd like to come off the street now and get sober, please. There's a lot of um, handholding and hoop jumping and paperwork and getting access to a, a bed if you don't have a lot of money is actually quite a difficult thing to do. So so what we see is that population as well, just trying so hard to get sober and off the street, but not knowing where to begin. Director Kincaid, I see you nodding. Uh, what does this look like from your perspective? Well, the vast majority of the individuals from the last service center, uh, demographics are a little bit different. Uh, the vast majority is professional people, about 90%. But that 10% makes up a 38% of our admissions, which means these people are cycling through over and over. And they look very different than the, a 90% population. And this is an older population. And as Laura was saying, the challenge for finding care for this population is major because of the lack of publicly supported resources in our community. The treatment providers that that receive federal funds uh, to provide provide public supported uh, treatment services serve a 10-county area. And so there's almost always a waiting list to get access to those services. So what we've had to do in the Soviet Center is uh, go to, say, a second tier and third tier of care to get these people access to an appropriate setting. It may not be the first tier setting that we would like to get them into, like one of those state-supported residential beds, but we can get them to a second tier setting, which is a provider that it may be a faith-based organization or a provider that uh, is a peer-based organization. Those are perfectly safe places for individuals uh, to start their recovery journey in. So we have partnerships with these kinds of organizations to make sure that we can move these people along because, again, we're dealing with a time issue with this population. When they say they want to get help, uh, you got a window of opportunity to move that person into a care setting. If you can't take advantage of that window, then you're going to lose that person to return back to the, the street. And so uh, it's important to us to be able to get that person placed when they say they want help get them placed as soon as we possibly can. And we will go so far as to keep them in our service center until we can get them placed. And we have had people stay in our service center more than 40 days. And our service center is not designed for long-term stays. It's a very short-term stay. It's designed for that four to six-hour stay. Uh, we don't have a kitchen. We don't have the ability to serve, to keep prepared meals available for them. But 
our commitment to their care um, is that we will find what we need to make sure that they stay comfortable. That means that we have to buy meals for them or we have to get meals from our landlord, which runs a great big shelter where they sleep over 200 guys a night. So they got a commercial kitchen so they always got plenty of food. And so sometimes we have to we have to negotiate a relationship with them where they will allow us to get food to feed the individuals that we're keeping for a long-term stay. Great. Thank you. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to turn to Director Elmore. Could you tell me a little bit about how the beds in the dorms in your facility are organized? Yes. So we started out with a men's dorm and a women's dorm. And about a year ago, we tried an experiment, which was shifting the dorms from gender to basically substance of choice. So we found that people coming in drunk were ready, you know, on alcohol, were ready to go to sleep and sleep it off. But people coming in using stimulants, such as methamphetamines or crack cocaine, were very, very up and maybe had been up for a long time. Maybe were paranoid or agitated and laying down and going to sleep was not really a viable option. So we kind of split those people up by drug of choice and basically split them up by behavior rather than gender. So we still have a rolling partition where we can separate by gender if needed. We also have a private room for de-escalation for folks who are really agitated, or if say we only have one female and we have 12 men in the facility, we can separate her. Um, But we just try to be a little more fluid with it and try to meet the needs of the patient by what's going on in their brain. Because, you know, I think a lot of times when we've, as a culture, have seen this such as a punitive issue for so long that we really need to look at it from a science and health issue, like what's really happening in this person's brain and how can we address that appropriately. And how did this program get started? Can you give us some insight into that? In Houston, it was started. You know, there's usually the catalyst in Houston was the jail uh, situation, which was not good. We were under a federal jail monitor for 20 years. It was overcrowded. It was uh, old, it was uh, decaying, and we were basically being told by the feds to either build a brand new city jail uh, or reduce our population. And so we started looking at, we knew we weren't going to build a new city jail because we were in talks with the county at that time to build a joint processing facility. So we didn't want to invest those dollars in a city jail. We wanted to push those to this new facility. But in the meantime, we knew that was going to take two to three years and the feds were not going to give us that kind of time. So they said, you need to get your population down. So we started looking at what categories of arrest we could start working on very quickly to reduce. And public intoxication was the one we zeroed in on. And that is how we ended up working on a project uh, with Director Kincaid. And, you know, I think you, you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, we made it happen within like about an 18 to 24 month span, which anybody involved in government knows and that's from the time we just had our very first discussion to the time we opened the door. That's fast. Wow. That's fast. Yeah. Yes, that's impressive. And how about in Austin? How did your program get started and what challenges did you encounter? So probably many of the same things that Chief Lee is talking about, we experienced, but it's just it, we didn't start until much later. I think we opened our doors in 2018. So we're a younger sobering center. And then Director Elmore coming on in, I think, 2020, taking over there and, and, you know, expanding the scope a little bit of the different things that we, you know, the services and and who was going to be the customer base for this. Well, this is Laura from Austin. We did not take 18 to 24 months to do ours. Ours took, I mean, I remember 
the Austin community talking about a sobering center in 2004. And it took 14 years for, probably for us to get off the ground. There was a lot of opposition to it at the beginning. There was a lot of people saying, we don't want it here. We don't want it there. A lot of mythology. You think about what it was going to feel like or look like, that it would be a dangerous place or that it would be a place where people were loitering and they didn't want that to happen. So it just took a lot of really committed community leaders, the original founding board of the Sobering Center, uh, the committed city council to push it through. It took a really long time. And like Chief Chacon said, it took a while for law enforcement to see it as a benefit to them and, and make it worth their time. So what we, we try to do is really make that a good experience, make the drop off easy, you know, that type of thing. We have a lot of support now. I feel like we've done a significant, we've worked really hard to improve the relationships between the Sobering Center and the police department, the Sobering Center and the EMS system, the Sobering Center and the city council. Just in general, I think building that reputation and that integrity up has made a huge difference. Uh, Director Elmore, you mentioned some opposition from the community. And so I'd like to pose that also to our partners at Houston. Director Kincaid, what was the reaction from your community like? And was there any opposition that you had to overcome? So we were fortunate. The stars seemed to align for us on this project. We started with having this tremendous support from the police department. And then the police department had an influence on city leadership. And so all that moved really fast. Now, when we ran into our first challenge was, okay, they've agreed to do this. The question is where we're going to put it. And so that became one of the biggest first hurdles we had to clear. Mike Lee and I drove around Houston a number of days looking for spots. And we picked several that we thought might work. Uh, and then wanted to learn that there was a challenge that was presented with that location. Sometimes from the community, sometimes from business owners. But we were fortunate enough. And this came from leadership out of Houston, too. This, is, this actually came from the mayor's office to find a shelter, one of the largest shelters in the city, who had a building that they were using as a warehouse to enter an agreement to do a, long, a long-term lease. And the location was everything. And this is what really made this uh, kind of magical. And that is, it was so close to the police department. It was right downtown. It was really easy for law enforcement to get to. Everybody basically knew the area. And so the city engaged in this long-term lease relationship and converted that building from a warehouse to a two-story building. Uh, and put law enforcement on the second floor, the mental health unit, it's a division now, and there's a sobering center on the first floor. And so we, again, the stars aligned. That was the only major resistance that we ran into, as I recall getting it off the ground. Yes, Chief Lee. And, uh, no, we were fortunate the, the community support was overwhelmingly positive. The community, I remember the Houston Chronicle writing editorials. I still have them to this day. And, uh, you know, just talking, this, this, is, this is what we want to see. And it was the right direction to go. Uh, if there was any opposition, uh, it was internal in, the, in law enforcement and in, in the police department. But other than that, no, the community support was overwhelming uh, when they first heard of the concept, and they're still overwhelmingly supportive today. That's interesting. You said that there was opposition from inside the department. Can you tell me more about that and how you overcame that opposition internally? Chief says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> you know, the command staff, uh, both chiefs will let the command staff. Uh, I still remember, remember that day very vividly. 
doing the command staff presentation where I went up there and broke the news, you know, and did the presentation, showed them the direction we're going, what it's going to look like. And the chief was very good about letting them be, you know, vocal their concern, vocalize their concerns, asked a lot of hard hitting questions. Uh, we were prepared. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the chief said, this is the direction we're going as an agency. Mm-hmm. And so that's the end of that. The rank and file, the rank and file, you know, officers, I've always said, officers just want guidance. So, because there's so many, they have so, they wear so many hats every day and they have so many things they have to take care of. What they don't like operating in is a vacuum or with ambivalence, a lot of unknown, you know. And so, fortunately, the top of the organization, the chief, showed real leadership that he knew this was what he wanted to happen. And so that was able to temper a lot of the the opposition on the command staff. And without that, I think it would have probably, maybe it would sit there for 10, 12 years because I've worked on projects like that too. If you don't get the leadership and alignment, it's not going to happen. And also, you know, more importantly, over the years, the officers have, it, there's buy-in that, I think really the, the rank and file officers have understood and are seeing there's, you know, you know, when we talk about like procedural justice, that, you know, we can't incarcerate everybody and we have limited funding in law enforcement and county or government operations. And, and we have to be smart about the way we spend that funding and that, you know, I'm still maybe after 32 years, a little Maybe naive, but I still think most officers, uh, when I joined, and still to this day, they joined because they wanted to help people. And I, the chief probably has heard the same thing his whole career. I still don't believe that. that most officers joined to help. And they see programs like a sobering center, and they get it, that that's their opportunity. But you don't always get it. And that's where officers will get jaded over their career. It's, they don't always see that opportunity they thought they would have to really help society and help people, individuals. And this is the type of program and facility that I think a lot of them walk away from that interaction with that satisfaction of making a difference. The police perspective looking forward, it's the unknown, it's like Chief Lee's talking about. Lots of problems, lots of things could go wrong. There could be, you know, what if somebody gets hurt or, you know, it's gonna be a more difficult process and those type of things. And, And we still, to some degree, struggle a little bit with that, you know, when officers get turned away from the center or they have to return to the center to pick somebody back up, that can be a sense of frustration. But, you know, with time, those have really, you know, those wrinkles have really been ironed out for the most part to where that happens rarely. Officers have enough experience, particularly my officers working in the entertainment district that are making regular referrals. This is going to be a good candidate or they do not meet the criteria uh, because of a certain aspect and it would be better to put them into a more secure facility like a jail. But, you know, I think we experienced very similar, you know, tracks and just bringing officers along to understand the benefit of it. And officers, cops, they want to do good. They want to help people. You know, I think that this is an opportunity to do something where you, you really can change somebody's life by making a referral. And they, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the first time uh, and it's a one time 
or it's their 150th time like that and they've haven't used it. You know, that's those are each opportunities to to make a difference and to change the trajectory of somebody's life. So if you think about it in that way, I think it just makes a whole lot of sense to do this. Chief Chacon, what sort of challenges did you experience? One of the problems that really arose, and it was uh, just a mistake, was uh, offering it to officers as an alternative and really saying, hey, if you can do this, it would be good, but it's not mandated. And, and we did not see much participation in that. A policy change that came down the road is what really changed the you know, the, the use of the center and, and that policy change was basically mandating the use of the center if they met all the criteria for referral rather than, you know, it's, it's the choice, whether it's the officer's choice or whether it was the individual's choice. That is what really, you know, set it off and then start, people started taking more folks there. And then once officers did that, they realized this is an incredible, valuable tool for us to shorten our time on this individual call you know the drop-off time is usually about you know eight minutes or so to go in there and do a referral there's no paperwork there's no reports that are written other than some sign-in forms and they're a HIPAA protected facility so you know it just makes a lot of sense to to do this not only for those people that are in crisis and that need help but also for those who maybe made a one-time bad decision and we don't want to you know, adversely affect their future with the jail stay. So, you know, I think good learning moment for our officers to say, this is something that we can really do something positive for folks. Uh, they really take it to If you just give them good policy, a sound policy, and like the chief said, it's not a, a if you'll use this pro facility or if you'll do this, there's a lot of shalls in law enforcement. And there's a reason. Because these officers and often young officers, they're, they're looking for that guidance. And if you just guide them and you've got their back and you tell them this is the right thing to do, they come around. They come around very quickly. Even if it's something they don't really maybe philosophically agree with, but they know that you've put the policies and procedures to help facilitate their job, they'll be happy. What they don't like is when you do the opposite. Director Elmore, from your perspective at the Sobering Center, what challenges have you faced? Well, you know, the Austin Police Department is our most significant referral source, and we try to make it very easy for them to refer. Like Chief Chacon said, there are times where we, the medics will do a screening and figure out this, this person is actually, you know, very near liver failure or very near cardiac arrest or has an injury that we feel like could result in a a stroke or, you know, something else happening like a head injury. So we have to be very careful about things like that um, from a liability perspective. So we may have to send them to the hospital or, or something like that. Sometimes when they come in, they are combative or they, they get frustrated or aggressive and they may have to leave and go to the jail or if they refuse to stay. But we try to keep the officers out of sight at that point. We have big signs up on the walls. So I know that director Kincaid does also that says you're not in jail where, you know, we're trying to help you. Because people get confused, you know, they're, they're highly intoxicated and they also may not be familiar with the sobering center, but we try to make this easy for the police. We do in Austin, we do quarterly gratitude events for the police, try to give them as much coffee and tacos and things as we can. Uh, 
to encourage them to take a tour, to meet the staff, to uh, get to know us and vice versa. It's really important that we we stay in relationship with these folks, especially now where the, the tensions are high between law enforcement and communities. We really want to make sure that we're talking about all of these groups as human beings that we have compassion for and that we are in relationship to because we're all trying to solve the same problem. Director Kincaid, have you had a similar experience? We have a unique experience that we actually inherited because we have this neighbor, the Houston Police Department Mental Health Division, that office on the second floor. So we often share individuals that we serve, individuals that they see, often need the services that we offer, and sometimes individuals that we see, we need assistance from them on addressing those individuals' needs. And so we have law enforcement around all the time. So my staff is used to having law enforcement and working directly with law enforcement to solve problems almost on a given day. And so for law enforcement that are bringing people in, they don't always see this, but sometimes they actually see this relationship in play. And so they see that there's an established relationship already with law enforcement that basically we inherited because we share this location and we're such good neighbors and we share a population in common. And so it makes it, I think, much easier for the staff to, to recognize the relationship that exists between law enforcement and us. And we will get some new staff sometimes that do not understand how important this relationship is and how much a part of our service model this relationship is. And they may have some resistance to having that receptive attitude, may want to be, get defensive and sometimes maybe get a little argumentative, which is something that we have to get a handle on really quick and kind of reorientate them as to what the relationship should be, why the relationship is what it is, and what each role is. And uh, at the end of the day, each party is serving the best interest of the client that's, that we're sharing. And so we're just helping each other out doing our individual roles. And so for us, it's a partnership, and we need everybody to understand that. That is absolutely the key to success is the collaboration. Do you work with other organizations aside from the police? Director Elmore, let's start with you. What do those collaborations look like at your sobering center in Austin? Yeah, that looks very similar to what Director Kincaid is mentioning. Our largest referral partner is the Austin Police Department, followed by Austin Travis County EMS, and then followed by the emergency room. And then we have probably 50 other referral partners. So like, for example, um, the Safe Alliance is a domestic violence and sexual assault center in Austin. There are occasions where somebody may be sexually assaulted, go to their, to go get a rape exam and are too intoxicated to consent to the exam. So they come to us, sober up and go back to that, that um, entity. So there's a lot of like communication back and forth and and trying to um, move people from place to place. We also have agreements with treatment centers, sober houses, um, you know, courtrooms, clinics, other places where people may show up and be intoxicated where they can bring them to us. We'll hold them for 48 hours and then return them to that treatment center or that safe place where they're trying to continue their journey on to the the longer term process of recovery. We do the same thing that they do in Houston in terms of being creative and a little bit hustling for food and other things. It's like we don't have a kitchen. They have to prepare their own meals because we don't have the commercial kitchen and the license. So we're partnered with Keep Austin Fed or partner with the Central Texas Food Bank and try to get prepared meals and things that are prepackaged for, for them to eat while we're working with them. Um, and we've also had people come in and do, you know, 12 step meetings at the center. We've had people come in and do, um, 
and help to link them to other types of services. We have a formal partnership with the local mental health authority where people can go directly from our care into respite if the mental health is primary. So we're still building it. It's, you know, four years in and with COVID in there, who knows what real time means anymore. So it's only been open for four years, but with COVID, it feels like it's only been open for two or 17, something like that. So there's just a lot of like building the plane while we're flying it um, that's happening. Right, right. And with little precedent set for you, how can you tell if your sobering center is working? Director Kincaid, how do you measure success at the Houston Recovery Center? The first goal that we were given was reduce the jail population, and our stats will show that. Uh, it also, uh, we was also tasked with reducing the amount of time that law enforcement uh, has to deal with this population. Our stats will show that it takes about um, four to six minutes to turn a person over to us. Um, and then uh, it gets to what kind of change are we making in these people's lives? So uh, when we enroll a person in our 18-month program, we develop with them a recovery care plan. And we jointly agree that that's something that they're committed to. It's kind of like a contract for the next 18 months. And so we measure how many of those goals they complete. And sobriety is not a goal because we understand that addiction is a disease and return to use is, a, is often a part of the person's recovery journey. So it's not about returning to use because basically recovery is all about a discovery journey. Okay, you discover what you can manage and what put you in harm's way and what put you in a situation where you're likely to return to use. And then you learn how to avoid those situations. But you have to learn that. Now, people can tell you about that, but until you've experienced it a couple of times yourself where you get a sense that, okay, you know, I thought I had this under control and now here I find myself uh, fully engripped in, uh, in the addiction again. But um, but when you had to ask that person a, a month ago, a month earlier, if they were going to return to use, they would have told you no, and they would have believed it. They would have been 100% honest in their conviction that no, I'm not going to return to use. But they made a couple of errors in trusting that they could manage situations they put themselves in and discovered the hard way that they could not. So because of that, we don't look at abstinence being a true measure of success. What we do think is a true measure of success is you said you want to accomplish all these things on your way to being able to maintain abstinence. Now, how many of these things have you have you accomplished? We, we measure that. And the other thing, that, one of the reasons that it was important to do this is because sometimes it takes a person a long time to be able to maintain sobriety over a long period of time. Sometimes they never get to being able to maintain sobriety, period. But if you can get them to greatly reduce the amount of consumption, then we want to give them credit for that. You say you got a person that's drinking a gallon of vodka every other day. We get them down to cut that in half. And we made some success. We want them to have credit for that. That's not the goal. The goal is to get them to get them abstinence, especially when they have that level of, uh, of consumption. But we understand that that's a journey. So we call it a recovery journey. That's a journey. Right. Uh, they got to get there. progress toward yeah, that goal. Progress toward that goal is what, we, is what we're measuring. Keeping the goal in sight, mm-hmm. but progress toward the goal. So we can give this person credit for some accomplishments so they can kind of feel good about, okay, I'm getting credit for something that I achieved here. Mm-hmm. Um, anything to add from a policing perspective? It's chiefly, I mean, for the agencies that are you know considering going this route, I mean, you know, some of the small things that we had to think about, you know, because uh, officers and the rank and file, they're, they're pretty good about 
you know, some of the stuff that, you know, because we're, cause we're talk, talking high level things here as far as developing one. But, you know, then we started getting peppered with the things like the chief, I'm sure would understand, but, but wait a minute. And previously, if we arrested a, a, a PI or someone for public intoxication, well, we got credit on our work card or our daily activity report. And so if I do this and I'm taken on to a uh, you know, sobering center, uh, that's no longer an arrest. So I just spent probably, you know, some time out of service and my sergeants want to know, do I get, you know, what were you doing? So just some of the things like that, that where we had, we went and modified our daily activity reports. So they did get credit and as silly or as small as that sounds, that's, that's huge. These officers, they, they, they get, you know, evaluated on their performance, like all employees. And so, you know, think about the, think about the small things. I was just going to add on, I think one of the points that Chief Lee just made is a great one, which is, you know, if if as a department you are still trying to gauge success by using the metric of how many arrests are we making, you know, there's some that I think it's important that you talk about, like DWI arrests, right? But on something like this, is it more important that you get a stat for having made, you know, a booking at the jail or or does it make more sense to to look at your your metric for success on making a referral for somebody who's in crisis? Whether that's an, you know they're they're in crisis because of um, you know their intoxication, um, maybe it's substance use, um, or you know just something that is at the root maybe of these things, uh, which we know depression and other mental health illnesses can manifest themselves this way. That should be where we are looking at what is our, what is our metric for success? And I, I just wanted to highlight that because I thought that was an excellent point. And really as a, as a law enforcement agency, that's the way that you need to gear your thinking. This is Laura from Austin. I, I was going to add to that too. I think that's a two way street too, that if it, we're talking about reshaping systems. So if we, we didn't have sobering centers before now we do. So if law enforcement is saying, well, what are what is our goal here? Is it to check a box and say we arrested somebody or is it to protect and serve that person right then? In, in which case the need for keeping that client safe is um, paramount. Then how do we adjust our measurements around that? Same is true for the sobering center staff. How do we, you know, I'm communicating to them that the goal here is jail diversion. The goal here is not to call back APD every time you have a moment where you're uncomfortable, you know, and, um, and to keep in mind, I tell them to keep in mind too, that these people are very highly acutely intoxicated. They're going to make you mad. They're going to say something inappropriate. They're going to make you uncomfortable. And our job is to be a little tougher than that, you know, a little tougher than we can withstand some of that because these people are going to say those things to cops. They're going to say those things to the people at the jail, the people at the hospital. So we need to be better at de-escalation. We need to be better at holding, holding people accountable, but in a kind way, rather than saying, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to pull back the police here. I'm going to do this or that. It's all that system of control rather than kind of a system of facilitated care. Like, how do we get this person to the right place? So I think we all are in that place of trying to redefine how we measure success and what our goals are and, and then holding our staff accountable to that, but in a way that makes them feel like there's incentives for them to make the right choice in that moment. Do you have any advice you'd like to offer for law enforcement interested in leveraging a sobering center? 
Yeah, I want you to learn from what we've learned, you know, sometimes through mistakes and sometimes by happenstance, and we, we did it correctly and, and recognized that if we hadn't done it that way. It's been, I mentioned, location of a sobering center physically in the city matters. It needs to be near your jail. And, and I say that because as you make this cult, you know, this kind of culture shift, this mind uh, changing of the mindset, um, you, you have to basically make it as easy for an officer to take a person to the sobering center as it is to take them to the jail. And maybe over time that, that won't be as important, but at the outset, it's pretty critical. The policy piece that I mentioned, which is that you really need to make sure that you're mandating the use of the center right from the beginning is going to be important so that officers understand, just to Chief Lee's point, you know, officers just want clear direction. Please just tell me what you want me to do. I'll make sure I get it done correctly. So mandated, it will be a little, you know, a little rough at the outset. And, you know, cops always grumble. We're really good at doing that. I say the two things that cops hate is uh, change and the way things are. Right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, but but just, you know, help them through that transition. The leadership buy-in from the top, it's not going to work without it. So you need, just like Chief Lee was talking about, and the way that I've tried to lead on this effort is, um, is to make sure that not only that you're telling them what you're doing or why you're doing it, um, and, and being very clear with your personnel about that, the community engagement piece is, is pretty critical and, and leveraging all of your community partners because these centers, you know, are often, it feels like I'm sure operating on a shoestring budget and they're trying to, um, you know, service as many people as they can. And, and many times service can look different for some people. It's a one night stay for others. It is, you know, it's going to require a continuum of care to get them back to where they need to be. And so all of that requires money and resources. And so you've got to leverage all your partners. You, you know, you've got to get that buy-in, not only from the leadership at the Sobering Center at the police department, but your city councils or your, or your county commissioner's courts uh, so that they understand how important this is. Um, so lots of things I think that you need to be thinking about as you, if you're thinking about opening one of these up. Um, Houston is... You know, probably, uh, I would say, far ahead of where we are uh, in, in many respects. The models of our two centers uh, don't look exactly the same. But I would say, you know, kind of figure out what you're trying to accomplish and certainly reach out to us. And we're more than willing to share, you know, the policies and, and kind of the playbook for how, how these things were done so, um, so we can be helpful. Uh, reach out to, you know, either uh, – our organizations or other uh, sobering centers around the country and ask those, you know, types of questions. I mean, that the types of questions that I was peppered with by, you know, commanders, you know, uh, you know, Hey, wait a minute, what's our liability? We, my officer puts that person in custody and takes them and hands them off to Laura or Leonard. And now they hurt somebody in their center. Are they going to sue us? Or what if they leave? Is there a law now that prevents them from leaving that facility while they're still intoxicated? I can tell you that was a tough one. That was a tough one. That that was probably the question we got asked the most by law enforcement leaders was, wait a minute, we've taken them over, they're intoxicated, and now they're going to ensure they're sober before they leave. And I said, well, we can't guarantee you that. We can't. But we do know that their staff will work with the individual and let them know that if they, they're not in the condition to leave, that they will 
and have to notify law enforcement. And I can tell you that that was probably one of the, if not the biggest concern, that the, this vision that we were going to have, uh, you know, folks just wandering out. As soon as the patrol officer drove off, they would be wandering all around the streets downtown, still inebriated, and it just did not come to fruition. And, you know, we know we had uh, a problem with uh, suicide in our jail among our population that was intoxicated. And that was a concern going, well, if they're willing to kill themselves in a jail and there's police around and detention personnel around, well, they're going to go to this facility and definitely kill themselves. And it's been the complete opposite because we told them it's a different environment, different environment. We have not have had that problem occur. So just some of the small things uh, like that that they probably need to think about. And, you know, now, you know, those out there that are looking, to, they have the benefit. Some of us didn't. There's a lot more facilities now. But definitely reach out and uh, ask all the tough questions. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, I think the analogy of building a plane while we've planned it is good. And I think that that's likely to continue because just about all the programs that we've developed since we started the Southern Center has been organic. It means we discovered something inside of this population that needed to be addressed. And by addressing that, we had the ability to improve their outcomes. And so I think you're going to continue to have that experience going forward. And I think anybody that do this, if you start looking at the needs of the population that you're seeing, and you really want to focus on the needs, uh, especially those needs that caused them to be in that situation in the first place, you're going to find that there are different pathways that you're going to need to run, different partnerships that you're going to need to form, uh, and different resources you're going to need to tap into to be able to respond to those needs. That is chiefly, I mean, I guess in closing, some of the tips I would come to mind are for those organizations, law enforcement specifically, that are listening and are, are considering the sobering center. I mean, do the, you've got to do your homework. You've got to do your research. And luckily, like I said, there are more facilities now that you can reach out to, like ours. Uh, I highly recommend you visit facilities. Uh, Visit them on different days at different uh, hours, like Leonard and I did. Um, and for when you go, go with your partner. If you've already decided at that point when it's time to go take a look now, you've progressed to that point. The organization you're going to collaborate with, make sure that collaboration starts right then. That you go, law enforcement goes with your partner. And I, I can recall Leonard would be inside that facility and he'd be asking all those questions of the professionals and the clinicians. And I'd be outside waiting for the next patrol car to pull up because that's what I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear from the law enforcement officers because I knew that was going to be the key. That was what I was looking for. What did that patrolman have to say? And when I knew being an officer, they would tell me the truth. And I'd walk up to that car and I would ask them, you know, you tell me it's between you and I. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I can tell you, uh, it was overwhelmingly positive. Every time I asked the officers, they said, it's great. It's, it's great. It works great. It's fast. And um, so that's important. Another tip I would give as you're doing your research is to think when you're thinking about who you're going to go into collaboration with. I know before we formed the LLC that Leonard ended up being the director over, we were looking at some of the you know, we're police. We didn't know where to go. So we looked at some of the, you know, organizations that you naturally look for that do this type of work. Uh, and fortunately, as I kept researching, I, uh, 
you, you know, I came across a city that had a very successful sobering center for a number of years, but the partner they had chosen was a religious organization, but then uh, they were sued, unfortunately, like six years into it, and they had great success, and then it got shut down for years, and there's nothing worse than officers, you know, it's like giving them a crisis drop-off center, and then they have it for two and three years, and you finally got that buy-in, and then all of a sudden, you got to announce to them it's closed, it's no longer there. And uh, so, you know, that's things to think about. I mean, because, uh, you know, that can cause you real problems. And then you start over from scratch. Luckily, that city uh, that I'm speaking of, they, they did. It took them about three years to recover and then reform with a different organization, open back up. But I remember talking to that department. And the second time getting the buy-in was a little tougher because those officers remembered what happened that first time. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really yeah. important to set yourself up for success. Set yourself you. up for success. And then, you know, one final comment is just following up on what Chief Chacon said is that, you know, just remembering the why, you know, why, why it's, why you want to do this and being able to tell your officers why, why it's not only the right thing, you know, being prepared to say, look, this is not soft on crime. This is being smart about crime and about utilizing your time and resources more effectively to address, you know, the violent crime that's out there. This is Laura from Austin. I would just add that in terms of being set up for success, you know, my background is, is in nonprofit management and always has been. And what has been great for me is having that board of directors in place and the chief is included in that. So, you know, we, we've got positions on our board that are set and stable with those positions as representatives of stakeholders at the table. And that prevents those types of things from happening, you know, so where we do not become so vulnerable as a nonprofit um, for to to have a, a major lawsuit take us down or to, to to have a cash flow issue take us out. There's a there's a real buy-in there from the city and the county. But my connection to the chief is a huge deal. So that being me being able to call him, us being able to have conversations and problem solve is how you really set that up from the beginning to, to be successful. So I, I appreciate the support of the chief and I appreciate those listening who are interested in, in doing that. But your role as a chief is critical to the success of this, um, this project. Well, I'd really like to thank all four of you for being here, but also for being willing to build the plane while flying it so that others to come don't have to do that and can learn from your experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.